Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Sam Rickless onto the show. Sam is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, where he's written books and papers on a whole host of philosophical topics, from Plato to the nature of moral responsibility to arguments about the existence of God. But more recently, Sam's created a course called The Meaning of Life at San Diego that he's just started offering to students last year. I first read about this course on a guest post made by Sam on a philosophy blog called The Philosopher's Cocoon earlier this year, and I thought, wow, so much of Sam's Meaning of Life course gets right to the heart of what Searching for It is all about. So I've been really excited to have Sam come on the show, and as part of this episode you can expect to hear us talk a bit about his Meaning of Life course, how we can undertake experiments in living, and ways in which we can make our lives more meaningful. There's also a bit of discussion about the philosophies of Camus, Nagel and Wolff, so if you haven't listened to the episodes on these philosophers quite yet, you might be interested in checking them out first. But otherwise, that's enough from me. Let's begin today's episode. Sam, welcome to Searching for It. Thank you. So uh, I'd first thought to have you on, obviously, after reading your post that you'd made on the uh, Philosopher's Cocoon blog, where you'd been talking about the Meaning of Life course that you've been teaching this year. Um, but when I was doing a little bit of uh, looking into the kind of research outputs that you've been doing, the work that you've been doing, I saw on your website that it's not just philosophy you've been doing, you also have a whole catalogue of limericks that you've written. And I gather you've written one for today's episode. <laughs> yes, on, in my spare time, I do write limericks. Actually, I've written a whole history of philosophy or history of Western European philosophy in uh, roughly 108 limericks, which you can find on my on my website. Okay. Um and yes, so I do have a limerick for today, so I thought I would share that with you. Looking forward to it. Um, here we go. Um, after all, the, the topic of, of your podcast is searching for it, it so is. I thought this limerick would be appropriate. We are searching for meaning, my friends. Some think life is absurd or extends. Some think pleasure's the thing, or a project, or fling, or a better golf swing or to paint, sculpt, or sing, or a whole lot of bling. But the answer is clear, so please do lend an ear. In the service of moral, cognitive, or aesthetic ideals, it's the minimally successful, active, and morally untarnished pursuit of freely chosen, objectively, and intrinsically valuable ends. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to know that the the answer is clear. (laughs) An extended limerick as well. (laughs) Well, it is an extended limerick, yes. I took, uh, I took liberties. Yeah, I love that. So um, what was it that got you thinking about these kinds of questions in the first place, both in terms of philosophy and the philosophy of the meaning of life? Well, like most people, I think, who are growing up in adolescence and starting to think about their place in the world and uh, whether anything means anything and what their purpose in life might be or what life might look like in the future, I was drawn to philosophy in part for those reasons. But as I became more and more interested in philosophy academically, I realized that a great deal of philosophy that's academic philosophy doesn't focus on the kinds of questions that many people ask when they are first drawn to it. And I was happy to do this uh, from an academic point of view for many years. And I, th- I think I was always you know, curious about the question and, and whether 
philosophy could give us any kind of answer to it. But I also thought that I didn't have enough life experience um, in my 20s, in my 30s, even in my 40s, to really sit down and, and think about the question of life's meaning. So it was also the case that at my university, uh, we had never had a course on the meaning of life. And I thought, well, this is something that a number of students are going to be interested in anyway. So those two, those two paths converged. On the one hand, I was interested in the question. Actually, three things converged, right? On the one hand, I was interested in the question. On the second hand, um, I was now old enough, I think, to be thinking about it seriously and with some experience to think about it. And on the third, um, there were probably going to be students interested in the issue. And so I thought I would create a course on that basis, and I did. I, I was helped in this endeavor by looking on the internet and by communicating with other scholars, uh, such as Helena de Bres at Wellesley, and, and others, uh, Susan Wolfe, who had written this great book uh, based on a series of lectures uh, called The Meaning of Life and Why It Matters, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters, and also by a, um, by a great uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article and book by Thaddeus Metz. And these, these were the start of my investigations. I mean, I, I'd known about a number of things that I was going to put on the syllabus, but for additional, more recent work, I, I needed some help. And so I went there. I find it interesting that you point out, because I, I've certainly found this to be the case, that a lot of people enter philosophy by thinking about these kinds of existential questions. But on the other hand, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of investigation actually into those questions um, within the academic circle. Why do you think that might be? Well, I think that's I think that's partly true, and partly not. So here's the true part of what you've said. I think a a good chunk of what's normally called analytic philosophy doesn't tend to focus on these questions very much. It hasn't in the past, but this is changing. So in the past, I would say fifteen or twenty years. Well, there were occasional articles written before then, but in the past fifteen years or so there's been much more sustained effort on the part of analytic philosophers to understand, to make distinctions, to, uh, and to contribute to theories of life's meaning. Before then, most of the philosophers who were thinking about meaning of life questions thought of themselves as belonging more to the continental tradition. I, I, use, I use these terms analytic and continental, but I'm well aware that there are uh, scholars who straddle both, and th th these are not exhaustive or exclusive um, descriptions of how philosophy is conducted by any means, and I, I don't mean to be suggesting this, but as broad, as broad um, approaches, there were a number of philosophers in the continental tradition who thought about these questions, existentialists, uh, but also non-existentialists, phenomenologists, and others. Um, and then, of course, there are a number of philosophers from non-Western traditions who also thought about these questions quite seriously. Uh, Buddhist philosophers or um, Chinese philosophers also, although they might not have thought of themselves as contributing to meaning of life questions in particular, had a number of things that they uh, could contribute to this, Indian philosophers and so on. And I'm more well-versed with the Western tradition than I am with traditions in other parts of the world, but I think we should take them all seriously. Yeah. 
But it's your understanding then that, I guess now within the Western analytic tradition, that questions about the meaning of life are starting to gain a little bit, little bit more traction. Yes. And I think, the, I think that there are two main reasons for this. One is the very important work of Susan Wolf, yeah. who's a professor at the University of North Carolina, and, um, and also the work of Thaddeus Metz, who's a professor in South Africa. And these are two of, of many, but they are two who really put the question of the meaning of life firmly on the analytic map. And it's uh, now thanks to them that a, a, a good deal of theoretical work is being done in analytic philosophy. Yeah, and I saw that, um, as I saw the syllabus that you've uh, been teaching as part of the Meaning of Life course, and I see the Susan Wolf features quite heavily in that. Yes. As part of that course, has there been a lot of interest in taking the Meaning of Life course? Has there been a lot of uptake among students? One of the things that led me to this course, uh, which I forgot to mention earlier, is that um, a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, a group of Christian persons who believe in Christian apologetics, that is, you know, defenses of Christianity and also debates, non-Christians and sort of bringing the gospel through debate, wanted to have a, a, um, a debate on campus and, and uh, reached out to various faculty at UC San Diego. And they reached out to me and I agreed to uh, debate a, a professor on the question of whether uh, the meaning of life requires uh, that God exist, it wasn't focused on, you know, arguments for or against the existence of God, but it was focused on the relationship between, if there is any, between the existence of God and the meaning of life. And this group, really a group of wonderful people, really interested in philosophical questions, but from a Christian perspective, they rented out uh, one of the largest rooms on campus. Uh, a room that could seat roughly 800, 900 people. Wow. And I, I thought, well, that's, that's really odd. First of all, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a VIP on campus. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the person I was debating, you know, wasn't exactly a household name. And so I thought, well, this is odd. But then uh, the two of us showed up for this, uh, for this debate and 800 people showed up. Wow. Um, 800 people, they were faculty, students, uh, people from the, from the community. Uh, I guess they had done a really good job of advertising it, but also it was pretty clear to me that a very large number of people on campus, students included, Christian or not, faculty also were really interested in this question and had a, had a thirst for it. And that's, that's what led me to, that's partly what led me to uh, start the idea, to get the idea of starting this course. And sure enough, yeah, I mean, the first, the first time I offered it, um, 70, roughly 60 to 70 students uh, enrolled, which is unusual for the first time that a philosophy course is offered at the junior senior level, which mm. is how we do it here. I could have offered it maybe at a lower division level, but it might have, might have gotten fewer students actually, surprisingly, if I had done that. So um, yes, and I, I'm, I, I'm expecting the same thing uh, in the future and I'll be teaching it in the winter so I'm hoping for an even greater number of students. Yeah, it sounds like there was a lot of interest then. And uh, I gather as part of the course, um, there was something a little bit unique about it in that students were offered, oh, asked to complete an experiment in living. So do you want to uh, tell me a little bit about what that involved? Yes, sure. So of course I got the idea from John Stuart Mill who talks about experiments in living or experiments of living 
uh, with the idea that this is a way to uh, to organize your life in a new way, try something new, try something different. So what I uh, what I asked the students to do was to come up with an idea for something that they had never done before, and something that they thought might possibly contribute to uh, adding to the meaningfulness of their lives, uh, something that might make their lives more meaningful. This was done with the idea that the course would be a, a journey of discovery, that this would be indeed an experiment because they wouldn't know necessarily before they started whether actually it would add meaning. And I asked them to do this in the first couple of weeks of the course to pick something that they could do for an extended period of time. It wasn't just a one-time thing that they would have to do for at least three weeks on a regular basis, uh, some kind of activity or experience. And, uh, and then at the end of the course, um, I asked them to write a paper first describing the experiment that they had engaged in and second um, thinking about whether it really was meaningful according to various theories that they had studied in the course so they could apply the, uh, the theories and understand the theories that they had learned about. But then also, of course, to reflect on whether they themselves thought at the end of the day that what they had engaged in added, detracted from, or just was neutral with respect to the question of whether it added meaningfulness. And the students, um, I think the students learned a good deal from this. It sounds like um, a risky proposition to be asking a group of students to be <laughs> undertaking an experiment of that kind. But were there any kind of interesting findings as, as a result of that? Well, the first thing I should mention is that there were restrictions on what the students could do. So, for example, they couldn't do anything that would uh, violate the honor code at UC San Diego. They couldn't do anything that was illegal um, or immoral or just not allowed. And they had to run the experiment by me because another thing that students are sometimes prone to think of are, are, are dangerous activities that they do not necessarily realize are dangerous. And so I wanted to, I just wanted to make sure that the activity would not be dangerous to them or to others, that, they, that it was legal and that it was in keeping with the, with the requirements of the university. So the first thing that students did I mean, some of them, I think, thought very seriously. In fact, most of them thought very seriously about activities that they had never done before. And they were a little stumped by this because, of course, they had already tried a number of things as adolescents. And so this was, um, this was a bit of a challenge for them. But, but the vast majority of students, the vast majority, when I asked them, came up with things like this. And I'll just mention a few. And then maybe you can tell me what you think they have in common. So here were some common suggestions. Meditation was popular. Rock climbing, walking on the beach and taking photographs, uh, maybe not something that you can do as easily in the UK, but there are places there that you can do this. There are some. Yes. <laughs> um, keeping a journal, changing one's diet, uh, going vegan in the same department, changing one's sleep schedule, learning a new language, and learning to play a new instrument. Now. This, these were examples of some of the things that the students proposed. And I said, absolutely, go for it, try it. And I, I, you know, I, I, I said no to very, very few things, only the things that were dangerous or illegal, of which there were many. And I, I, um, but with the idea that maybe students could learn from the course and from the activity, 
what strikes you? Is there anything that strikes you about all of the things I've just mentioned? Is there anything that you think that they have in common? I mean, they all sound interesting. Um, they all sound like activity-based or, I mean, bringing activities into your life rather than trying to highlight something that you're already doing. But I guess that's part of the experiment anyway. But is there something else that you're alluding to there? Yes, there is. So let me give you another group of things that a smaller group of students suggested doing. And maybe you can see by contrast what it is that uh, I was thinking that you might see as, as they're being, as they're having okay. something in common. Okay, so here's the second group. Working in a homeless shelter, writing web posts documenting racism and making the case for real solutions, making instructional videos and posting them on YouTube, um, something like what you're doing, um, working on a political campaign. So there weren't many of these suggestions on the part of students, but a few students made these sorts of suggestions. And, and can you think of, I mean, what, I'll just, without asking you, I'll just say, I mean, what, what or maybe you can tell me, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think that you, you, once you give the second group, you can see the contrast insofar as the first group, I guess, are all kind of self-interested activities. Absolutely, that's the, that's the crucial thing. And I don't, and I think just like you and me also, when I was reading these, uh, these, when I was reading one after another of these suggestions for experiments in living, I really wasn't thinking one way or the other until I, I, until I saw the contrast. And then I realized that most students were asking to do things that were about self-improvement or self-development or self-realization or self-understanding, something focused on the self. That's completely understandable. It's a time in life when a large number of people are focused on themselves. And of course, one of, the, one of the reasons why people are drawn to meaning of life questions is that they are already thinking about their own lives, and so they are focused on themselves. So there's something perfectly understandable. I'm not criticizing students for being interested in, in self or self-development or self-realization. I think that's, that's totally fine. But I was struck by the contrast with activities that students suggested that were focused on others and the betterment of the world in one way or another. And one of the things that I wanted students to think about was whether that was something that ma might matter in the end uh, with respect to the question of whether life has meaning. Do you get more meaning or less meaning from engaging in self-related activities, self-developmental activities, or in, in focusing on activities that are designed to help others or have an impact on the lives of others or, or change the world in some way. Yeah, that's, I find that really interesting that um, it was kind of skewed that way in the experiments that they were proposing. We had Peter Singer come on the podcast a couple of months ago and he was talking very much about how, in his opinion, focusing more on bettering the lives of others, you know, is, in his opinion, the best way of attaining meaning or, or meaningfulness in your own life. Uh, is that kind of a, a thought that you would agree with there? So I think it's one way that, you're, <clears throat> that your life can acquire more meaning or can be more meaningful, but I think it's not the only way. Mm. Um, mostly what I wanted students to be thinking about was whether this was something that could potentially add meaning and possibly add more meaning than other forms of activity. And what the interesting thing for me was at some point in the course, I think in the fourth or fifth week of the course, I, um, I asked students, uh, because I think this is an important question, if they had any paradigms, any very good examples in their minds of people who had led exemplary, meaningful lives. 
people they thought, you know, that they had learned enough about their biographies to know that their lives were meaningful and, and very meaningful. And what was interesting to me was that the kinds of examples that students came up with were not largely of individuals who had engaged in self-focused, self-developmental, self-realizational activities, but rather people who had devoted themselves to something other. Right. Not necessarily um, the helping of others, uh, but other things. So scientists, for example, were a good example. You know, Marie Curie and uh, Einstein and others, uh, other, other scientists came to mind. These were all names that students had written on a piece of paper and, and handed to me in, uh, anonymously in, in class. So there were also artists, uh, Frida Kahlo, Beyonce, singers, sculptors, painters, and so on. Those were also, but these are not necessarily individuals who are trying to, uh, who are folk who in their activities are focused on others. Um, they are focused on, in, you know, uh, scientists are focused on understanding something and uh, artists are focused on some kind of aesthetic ideal maybe. But of course, they also, also prominent examples that were given were people like uh, Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr. Or, um, or Nelson Mandela, individuals who had worked tirelessly for justice, racial justice, and other examples uh, like this. And this was also prominent in the minds of the students. And what I asked them was like, I, I asked them, there, there seem, I, I put this to them, there seems to be this real disconnect between the kinds of examples you're giving me on the one hand as the people you think lead paradigmatic, meaningful lives and the kinds of activities that you proposed as part of your experiment in living. And I just want you to think about, you know, think about the contrast between those two things, you know, uh, is, you know, on the one hand, you think these people have a lot of meaning on, uh, in their lives. On the other, you're proposing to do something that seems to be not the sort of thing that these people engage in. Now, I think for a number of students, the reason for that is that they, they think, well, I can't, I can't be a Rosa Parks, or I can't be a Nelson Mandela, or I can't, you know, I can't be a, 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 a Marie Curie, Curie or a, a, an Albert Einstein. Now, that's, that's something that's beyond me. Those were, you know, amazing individuals who had these extraordinary gifts. But I think that's a mistake. I think there are a number of ways in which we can both contribute to the world and also learn something or create something of value in a, in a smaller way, but where the value created or, or, uh, or learned is, is something very significant. And of course, the more one learns or the more one does for others or the more one creates, the more meaning one can thereby acquire. There's one thing I want to I want to pull you up there on. I mean, it's interesting what you say about the disconnect with the, with the students and that they propose to do kind of self-interested things, whereas they then cite people who have done more altruistic actions or people who have contributed more to the world when they're actually giving examples of people who live meaningful lives. But one thing I want to pull you up on there is how you kind of, you seem to distinguish between meaningful lives on the one hand and actually having meaning in life on the other. Um, what's the what's the difference there? Well, I don't know that there is a difference. I think there are distinctions to be drawn, but I, I think when, um, when I ask myself whether there's meaning in my life or, 
whether uh, it, that, that's not really a, a question that's all that terribly different from the question of whether my life is meaningful. But there is a question, <clears throat> there are sets of questions that need to be distinguished in the area. And probably the most important distinction is <clears throat> the distinction between whether human existence, whether the fact that there are human beings is something that is meaningful or has meaning or has a point or a purpose, whether the, you know, the, the, the existence of human beings matters in some grand sense or whether it has a point on the one hand and the question of whether an individual's life is meaningful uh, more or less or meaningless. That's, uh, I think those are separate questions and it's possible to answer the first one negatively while answering the second one positively. Okay. So the one philosopher that we talked about a bit in this in previous episodes of this podcast is Camus. And I think he's particularly drawn to that first question. Um, does life have meaning or does it have a purpose? Or as you say, is there a point to life? Um, would you disagree with Camus then in his emphasis on that question and his setting aside of the question as to whether individual lives can have meaning? Well, I think that, I think that Camus is probably right that the existence of human beings if that's the question that he's interested in, but I don't think he distinguishes them very clearly. So it's hard to, it's hard to tell sometimes which one he's really focused on. Um, I think in as much as Camus has some insights, it's into the idea that uh, the, there is no point to the existence of human beings. We just are, we are the products of evolution. This is not something that he really talks about. Well, we just happen to have evolved in the way that we did there's a sense in which it's a cosmic accident. It's just a number of a number of factors contributed to the development of human beings, but it's not like we are here for a purpose. Now, of course, if you're a if you are a religious person, then you're going to disagree with this. But I don't think this was Camus' way of looking at the world, and I think he's probably right about this. But on the other hand, Camus also, I think, thinks of the question of life's meaning as very individual. I mean, after all, he raises the question by, uh, by saying that uh, the, the problem of suicide is the most important philosophical problem. And that's a very personal question. It's, it's not this very grand question about the existence of humanity uh, or whether humanity has a point or purpose. It's about my life. Uh, should I continue to exist or should I not? And that he thought was the most important question. And I think where, where he goes wrong, I think, is in thinking that somehow the absurdity or the, the meaninglessness of, or the pointlessness of, human, of humanity, that, that that issue is relevant to the question of what I should do with my own life. I don't think it is. Now, he does have some interesting things to say about your own personal life, which could be relevant, so, for example, he says that the question of absurdity, which he thinks of as this uh, desire to understand that clashes with the world's incomprehensibility, that's how he understands absurdity as far as I understand it, um, that, that that starts from a feeling of a sense that your life is, uh, has turned into this kind of automatism. Uh, he talks about people who get up, um, have breakfast, go to work, come home, have dinner, uh, go to sleep, get up, have breakfast, go to work, blah, 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 you know, day in, day out. And then maybe, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, they, they do something interesting here and there, but on the whole, their lives are repetitive drudgery. And 
when they think of that, then they think, well, is there a point to this? Um, you know, what's the point, really? And that is, I think, an important question, and it is a relevant question to the issue of, you know, personal meaningfulness. And I think he's right to connect that in ways, uh, you know, to the Sisyphean idea that he brings up, right? The myth of Sisyphus, where Sisyphus is rolling a rock up the hill and, you know, it goes back down the hill and he, you know, rolls it back up again forever. Surely that's true for some lives anyway, that lives, that some lives are like this. And you might reasonably think, well, if, if Sisyphus's life is meaningless, then uh, lives that are sufficiently like Sisyphus's life are also meaningless. Now, in the more personal sense, not in this grand, you know, meaning of human existence sense. And about that, I think he's right. Uh, a Sisyphean life either has less meaning or is meaningless. And in that sense, uh, there is absurdity, or at least there's a threat of absurdity in people's lives. But I think he's wrong that this is the human condition. I don't think it is the human condition. I think that there are a number of ways to puncture the tedium uh, and boredom and repetitiveness and so on that uh, uh, that Camus describes as the source of uh, meaninglessness. And by pursuing those kinds of projects, to frame that as a response to Camus, how would they actually give our lives meaning? So if you if you go back to the limerick, right? Um, if you if you engage in projects or activities that are objectively valuable in the service of certain important objectively valuable ideals, and you're minimally successful at it, and your pursuit of those ideals or those activities is morally untarnished, and the ideals are freely chosen, they're not imposed on you, then it seems to me that your life is going to have more meaning. Uh, a lot of the drudgery that people find themselves in, for example, is something that's imposed on them or something that they fill into without really thinking about it. Uh, maybe they started in a job uh, early out of school. Maybe they went to university or not. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they started in some job and they fell into it. Uh, maybe it was the first job that was offered to them. And then they continue in the job and maybe they go up certain ranks and so on and then they reach a dead end or even if they continue. If they're not really invested in something, they, it's, not an, it's not something important to them. They're not doing something because it matters to them, but because they're just, you know, it's just a job. It's just a way to make money. Then they can become alienated from what they're doing. Uh, and it, it can happen early. It can happen later. It happens to many people even late in life that they realize that they don't really care about what they've been doing. The whole time and they you know that what it is that they're doing really doesn't matter very much so this leads them to change maybe to change a job or to give up their jobs and do something else that they think is more worthwhile and this is where this is where the the idea of meaningfulness does start to kick in and what do they do well some of them i think engage in more personal focus uh, they they sort of they drop out and they they do the '60s kind of thing. They uh, they spend all 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 day every day thinking about themselves or just in you know trying to get more pleasure. But I think that's not the answer. I think I think that that doesn't actually add much meaning to your life. I think the way to do it is to 
in, actually to engage in activities that have a point or purpose beyond you that involve uh, producing value in some way or, or producing or being connected to something valuable in, in something like the way that Susan Wolf describes in her book. I don't think I agree with everything that, uh, that uh, uh, Susan Wolf says, but I think that this is something that's a very important part of the right answer. Yeah. Okay. So to take this back to Camus then, if Susan Wolf is talking about leading meaningful lives and engaging in projects that have objective value, but Camus thinks that the universe is looking down in indifference and there is no ultimate point to our life. Is engaging in projects that have a value outside of ourselves, is this actually giving us a meaning in the way that, in the way that Camus is looking for? And just to give that a little bit more context, um, there was also a philosopher called Nagel, who I saw was on the syllabus for the uh, Meaning of Life course as well. He talks about Camus and the question of the absurd, and he frames the absurd in terms of looking at your, your own life from a third-party perspective, and the absurd arises when you see that actually all of these projects that you're engaging with yourself are arbitrary. Um, they don't actually matter from that independent third-party perspective. Now, if we're doing what Susan Wolf says and engaging in these kinds of projects that make our lives meaningful, are they still arbitrary from a third-party perspective? Uh, if so, is, is this actually tackling the absurd at all? Okay, good question. These are, that's, those are good questions, thanks. Um... So notice, first of all, before I get to uh, Walt's view, notice that um, Thomas Nagel, who wrote a very important article on the absurd, thinks of the absurd differently from the way that Camus thinks of it. So Camus thinks of it as uh, a, a, a search for or a desire for understanding or comprehension that the world, that the world resists, the world does not enable you to fulfill. And... Actually, I think that's probably wrong, that that's not, that's not the right way to think of the absurd. There, there is an, there's probably a sense of the absurd, but that's not where it comes from. And I think Nagel probably puts his finger on it more, uh, better than Camus does. Uh, for one thing, the world is actually something that we are learning more and more to understand. Uh, there, are, there are lots of things that we know about the world, and we keep on understanding more and more about it. And Now, maybe Camus was writing at a time when we didn't know as much but actually, we had already learned quite a bit by the time Camus was writing. So now maybe there's a sense of understanding that I'm not understanding that he's trying to get at. Um, but then he needs to explain what he means by it. Nagel says exactly what you say, he says. That is, there is a kind of conflict between the seriousness with which we take our own lives, thought of as looked at from the inside, and the arbitrariness or contingency of the activities that we engage in when we look at them from a God's eye point of view, right? From the point of view of eternity. And there is a, though there's a clash between those two things and uh, that makes us think that from the point of view of eternity, nothing that we do matters. Uh, Nagel's reaction to this is interesting. Rather than shaking his fists at the absurd in the way that uh, Camus suggests, you know, uh, treat it with scorn, which, uh, which Nagel thinks of as overdramatic. Uh, Nagel recommends uh, irony, right? He, he thinks, well, if, if from the point of view of eternity, nothing matters, then it doesn't matter that nothing matters, right? And so you can adopt a kind of ironic detachment from the, from the question that, you, that seems to be bothering you, uh, which he thinks is inescapable. And that's, 
that's a very, I mean, that's a really interesting way of looking at things. But one thing that, you know, that strikes me about Nagel is that there is a certain kind of, how should I put it, very philosophical uh, approach to, to life, right? Uh, here is someone who thinks that the absurd comes from thinking about things from the point of view of eternity. Now, that's something that he has the leisure to think about, uh, and he takes that, you know, who, uh, and maybe, maybe philosophers think that they can take that point of view on their own lives. And sure, okay, maybe for people who engage in that kind of very highfalutin philosophical activity, they will find themselves trapped in absurdity that they can't get rid of except through irony. But the vast majority of people are not in that situation. They do not, in fact, approach their activities or the things that they do from the point of view of eternity, or a number of them don't. And so the question of what to do with their lives and whether, you know, whether, whether certain activities add meaning to their lives or don't uh, is a live question for them. And even if, as I said before, we can distinguish these two questions, right? Is there some grand purpose to life as a whole? Or, um, you know, on the one hand and the other is like, are there things in life that you can do that would make your life more meaningful? I don't think that Nagel's discussion of the absurd really touches the second question. Um, I think we can still ask important questions about whether even if your life is absurd from the grand, you know, point of view of eternity and so on, even if it's all absurd in the end, we can still ask the question, which is a further question, well, okay, now that life is absurd, and so meaningless in one sense of meaningless, is there, are there things that can make my life more meaningful? And I think that's a real live question. And the reason it's a live question is that it's really not that hard for us to distinguish between people whose lives are meaningful or paradigmatically meaningful, the ones that I was talking about earlier, like the Nelson Mandela's and the Rosa Parks's and the and so on, um, we look at their lives and we think, wow, what they did was so meaningful, what they devoted themselves to was so meaningful, and their, their lives were so meaningful, and I wish that my life were more like that because I would have more meaning in it, right, on the one hand, and then the, life, the lives that I think some philosophers have helped us to see are sort of paradigmatically meaningless. So Susan Wolf talks about flagpole sitting or, you know, uh, long-distance spitting or, you know, um, just the life of a couch potato, right? Uh, sitting in front of the TV all day and not doing anything when the person, let's say, could be doing something else uh, but, but chooses not to. The lives of inactivity, not enforced inactivity, but chosen inactivity when there are alternatives, uh, lives of seemingly engaging in pointless activities that do not make a difference one way or the other in whether to oneself or to others, like sitting on flagpoles or racing lawnmowers is another example. Um, I mean, lives like that just seem, I mean, even if they have a certain minimal amount of meaning, maybe of course there are other things that people do, like they have relationships or they have, uh, they raise children or they, you know, take care of their parents or whatever it is that, you know, those things might uh, endow their lives with more meaning, but the, the kinds of activities that we're talking about here, are they meaning conferring? And that seems to be, the answer to that question seems to be no. So when we, when we, when we think about like these examples, it's clear that we need an answer to the question of, well, 
why are these lives over here meaningful and those lives not? Or why are these activities meaning conferring and those activities or inactivities not meaning conferring? And we, it'd be nice to have a theory of those things. What is it that makes those things what they are? And what is it that makes the other things uh, not meaningful? Uh, so I think um, Nagel himself actually draws a similar distinction to that which you've raised there between the grand questions of meaning from the perspective of eternity on the one hand and common sense questions about meaningfulness on the other. I think the analogy that's made is with epistemological scepticism. Um, so for any listeners who haven't come across that term, it's the idea in philosophy that you can carry on questioning your knowledge, you can carry on asking, but why, but why? And there might reach a certain point at which you can't explain it, um, explain how, how you know things. I think the consensus amongst philosophers is that scepticism isn't really the way and that we can have knowledge, even if, for example, we don't technically know that we're not in a brain in a vat. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, we can know that, you know, that we are existing in the real world that we can see. Um, I think in a similar vein, your distinction then seems to be that technically we can't know that lives have meaning from this perspective, uh, from the perspective of eternity. But in realistic common sense terms, we can still look at our lives as being more meaningful than others. Is that kind of the distinction that you're drawing there? There, it's, there are connections and it's true that uh, Nagel sees a connection between them. I'm, funnily enough, I'm more attracted to skepticism in epistemology than I am attracted to the absurd in, um, in meaning of life questions. And that's because I think that there are very high standards for knowledge Whereas the sort of the standards for what might count as meaningful are not nearly as high, if you like. So I don't think that we, strictly speaking, know that we are not brains and vats. I don't think that we know that we are not being deceived in, in various ways. Um, I think that our evidence, the evidence that we have is neutral as between those. And so we can't actually know that. I do think that it's, pro it's very... <laughs> highly probable that we're not being deceived on the basis of the evidence that we have, but that doesn't mean that I think that we know it. But I, I, on the question, of, on the question of, uh, of life's meaning, again, I think we need to distinguish, uh, and this is, the, this is the important thing, we need to distinguish between looking at things, if you like, from the point of view of eternity and the, the more quotidian perspective of what is it that would make my life more meaningful? In addition, I think there's, there's this other uh, issue with Nagel's way of looking at things, which is that when you take the point of view of eternity, says Nagel, you realize that your, um, your activities are, are contingent and arbitrary. Uh, that is, you could, have been, you could have been doing something completely different than you're actually doing, and that seems like it wouldn't make any difference. I think that's actually wrong. I don't. I think that there are standards, uh, objective standards, and this takes us back to Wolf. That there are objective standards that tell us that some things are actually non-arbitrary. That some things are objectively better than others. That some things are objectively right or wrong. Some things are objectively good or bad. Some things add value, and other things don't add value. And that that's an objective fact, not something arbitrary. 
So even when I take Nagel's perspective and I look at my life from the point of view of God, if you like, or from the point of view of eternity, I think, well, some of the things that I've done with my life and some of the things I've done in my life are bad and other things that I've done in my life are good. And that's just a fact and it's a non-arbitrary fact. And if I were to think about doing the, you know, more things of the bad kind, it's not arbitrary that they are bad. Right. So that takes us to Wolf's view, which is, uh, if you want to talk about it, uh, which is that, that the slogan is that it's, it's subjective attractiveness uh, meets objective value. So if you are actively engaged and you have feelings of fulfillment from activities that are objectively valuable and in a certain kind of proportion, that is the you know, your, your feelings of fulfillment are proportionate, your, your engagement is proportionate to the value that you're uh, connected to, then your life has more meaning. There's more meaning in your life than there would be otherwise. I think the part about objective value is deeply right here. I think that uh, the kinds of lives that we take to be parad paradigmatically valuable, uh, sorry, paradigmatically meaningful, uh, like the lives I was talking about earlier, the lives of the scientists or the creative artists or the, you know, the people who work for justice. Um, that what's interesting about all of those lives is that, is that they are indeed connected in important ways to things that are objectively valuable, various kinds of ideals, whether they are moral ideals or aesthetic ideals or cognitive ideals. And this is something I think that uh, Thaddeus Metz, by the way, gets right too in um, in 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 his in the focus in his focus on this question in his in his work but i am less i am less convinced in the way that some of wolf's critics uh raised this with her uh robert adams who was my former teacher at uh ucla raises this question for her in in the book which includes uh, responses from prominent philosophers and also artists I one of the things that uh, Bob Adams says, as I recall, is he pushes on the question of whether you need the subjective attractiveness part of this. Um, and the example that he uses is uh, the example of uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg, who um, realized during, he was living during the Nazi era, and he realized at some point that, um, and I don't remember exactly when, but that Hitler was a was deeply, deeply evil, and uh, and that the only real way to uh, make things better was to assassinate him and the people in his close circle. And so von Stauffenberg and associates uh, uh, came up with a plot to to kill Hitler. The plot almost worked. I think the bomb went off, but it didn't go off at at the right time or in exactly the right place. And so Hitler escaped and uh, von Stauffenberg was captured and executed. But if you ask yourself uh, whether, whether the activities in which he engaged, the attempt to assassinate Hitler at a really crucial time in the war, which would have saved millions yeah. of lives um, and changed the course of history, if that was uh, a meaningful act, even though it's not something that von Stauffenberg was really getting feelings of fulfillment from, then the answer is uh, that, that Bob wants to give to that question is yes. Uh, what he did was meaningful. It added a great deal of meaning to his life, even if he was unsuccessful. And you don't need the subjective attraction uh, to it. You might think, you might feel that you're compelled, that you absolutely need to do this because it's morally required of you. 
And when you're doing this, it's not, you know, you don't get much fulfillment from it. So this puts pressure, a little more pressure on, on Wolf's view. And I, I think Wolf recognizes the, that this is an issue because she, she talks about commitment and engagement and excitement and so on, but, not, and, but she pulls back from the feelings of fulfillment part of the view. So unfortunately, there's, uh, we've only got so long left. So um, I guess as a concluding thought, um, in terms of Susan Wolf's view, so if, if Susan Wolf's view is the idea that meaning, uh, to have a meaningful life is to be pursuing these kinds of projects that have objective value and to be tying in some kind of feelings of fulfillment in with that, would you yes. be willing to commit yourself to a criteria of what kind of actions or what kind of projects would confer objective value uh, as opposed to those that don't? So, for example, what makes the lives of Mother Teresa and Rosa Parks meaningful in a way that the couch potato isn't? Right. So I don't actually agree with, as I, as I was saying a bit earlier, I don't agree with Wolf that feelings of fulfillment are necessary for uh, your life to be meaningful. I think you can be really driven by something without feeling fulfilled by it in any way. Um, and you can't even, you're not even excited by it. I think, for example, when Mother Teresa was changing bedpans and ministering to people who were in, you know, in, uh, in pain and, um, uh, and so on, trying to make their lives better, that a lot of what she was doing was extremely hard work and she wasn't really so much gripped by it or excited by it. She just felt that this was something that needed to be done. I think that many people who engage in these kinds of activities who really see objective value uh, as important, whether it's, you know, whether it's truth or beauty or the right, or the right, right, a justice, for example, they are driven by these important values. It's not that they're so much excited by them, they just feel like they, they're captivated by this, captured by them, because they are objectively important. And when they, when they engage in those sorts of activities, I think their lives do have more meaning than they would otherwise. And that's what distinguishes the, the Rosa Parkses and the Marie Curies from, from the, the lawnmower racers. The lawnmower racers are not connecting to any objective value. At best, what they're doing is they're getting a little bit of pleasure out of, you know, out of doing something that's not all that terribly important. It doesn't mean that their lives are meaningless or completely meaningless, but it means that those activities aren't really very meaning conferring. And that's what helps us see that difference. So as I said, right, um, in my limerick, what makes a life meaningful is the minimally successful I think if you're a complete failure, I think that's probably not going to uh, be down to the meaning. If you're, if you're minimally successful, active, morally untarnished pursuit of freely chosen, objectively and intrinsically valuable ends, then, um, then your life is going to have more meaning. That doesn't mean that they have to be grand, right? It's not like you have to necessarily, uh, Susan Wolf makes this point too, you don't have to necessarily be you know, solving the problems of society or you know, learning the secrets of the universe. You can, or you know, or creating works of art like Picasso and Kahlo and so on, you can do good in the way that Peter Singer, for example, describes, even in very minimal ways. You can do good around you, to the people around you. You can help the people who are close to you. Uh, but you can also do, if you have any disposable income, for example, you can do good by, um, by giving to effective charities and organizations that do good elsewhere that cure, you know, help stop malaria and schistosomiasis and other diseases. Or, you know, you can, there are all kinds of ways in which you can contribute, even if you have a small amount of income that's disposable. You, you can learn things 
um, about the world and about other people. And you can do that in your spare time. Uh, yes, you can learn a language. Yes, you can learn about other cultures. Uh, if you have some disposable income, you can travel. When you do this, um, and in, even when you don't travel, you can learn things through the internet. And even if you don't have internet, you can learn things by talking to other people and, um, and just by asking them questions and being curious. And that kind of curiosity is going to add meaning to your life because it's going, you're going to learn more about the world and about other, others in it. And, and you can create. Um, one of the, th one of the uh, actually forced activities that I had my students do was to write poetry for an hour in, in groups of two. And they had to, uh, um, they had to do this. Uh, some of them were comfortable with it. Others were uncomfortable with it. But at least they were engaging in some kind of creative activity, perhaps something that they had never really tried in a very serious way before. And just so that they could, I wanted to do this so that they could get some sense of what creative activity is like and whether that's something that is objectively valuable. And I think it is. Um, so there are people who paint in their spare time or who make videos or who do podcasts or who... Even if it's only for, you know, even if it's not something that other people will see, it's still something that's, that adds value. And there are countless ways in which people can add value to their lives in this way. Philip Larkin, for example, one of the greatest poets ever, um, had a kind of, I think what he would have thought of as a, as a not particularly rewarding job. But uh, in his spare time, he wrote poetry, which was, you know, which changed the world in all kinds of ways. I mean, maybe you're not going to change the world, but if you think about things and you and you create, then uh, then I think your life is going to have more meaning. Well, I must say it does feel good, and I think this is a rarity for this podcast. But to actually be concluding with some tangible thoughts on what does actually confer meaning on our lives. Uh, <laughs> so thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today, Sam. Um, it's my pleasure, and thanks for inviting me. And thanks to you for listening to today's episode of Searching for It. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, it's always a big help to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's really helpful in getting the show out there to new listeners. If you'd like to pledge a small contribution starting at just $1 an episode, you can find the show's Patreon page on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. And if you'd like to learn a little more about the kinds of things that Sam and I talked about on today's episode, then take a look at the recommended reading page on www.searchingforit.org. Besides all that, thanks again for listening, and I'll be back in a month or so's time with an episode that'll investigate the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Mm -hmm.